This morning we're going to begin our study of the book of Jonah. So if you could turn to Jonah chapter 1 with me. If you don't know where Jonah is, just find Micah. Or you could go to the table of contents. That'll, that'll work as well. Have you ever been told to do something and you just absolutely didn't want to do it? When I was in college, that was research papers. You know, just give me a, a problem set. There's a beginning, there's an end, I'm done. But research papers, I just, I hated, I hated, the, I hated the, the subjectivity, which I, I do find kind of ironic now because basically every week for my job, I do a research paper and then present my findings on Sunday mornings. But in college, I hated it. So I developed this really brilliant strategy to ease the pain of research papers. I would, I would just put them off. And put them off and put them off. I'd wait till the very last minute till I absolutely had to do it. And, you know, it never worked. The syllabus didn't change. The prof didn't change his mind. I still had to turn in a certain kind of product and a certain date. And I did discover that when I procrastinated, I actually brought worse consequences on myself. But for some reason, I never learned. In fact, that was kind of a, a, a deeply ingrained avoidance strategy in my life. We all have those. We, we've all been told to do things we didn't want to do, even when we were kids. And we try to figure out ways to avoid that. Procrastination being one of those. I'm sure at times your mom said, clean your room, and you, just, you didn't do it immediately. Put it off and put it off and put it off with the hope that maybe she would get so frustrated and impatient she'd step in and clean the room herself, right? Or you'd complain about doing it, again, in hopes that you could wear her down so that through your complaints she'd step in and clean your room for you. Or you know, the nuclear option where you just say, well, I'm, I'm just going to hide, right? You can go outside, pretend you don't hear anything, or go get in a closet. No, I didn't hear you. Or, oh, I was doing homework in the closet, right? I mean, the, what I find interesting about that is if you look at those strategies to avoid doing what we're told to do, you see the same kind of thing in the life of Jonah. Jonah's just like us. God told him to do a job. He didn't want to do it. And so immediately he just ran away from God. God chased him down, brought him back. Jonah reluctantly obeyed. But then he complained about it some more. Then he got angry, and then the book is over. It's a great story. It just leaves you hanging right there at the end. And there is so much that we learn from this story, I think, about ourselves. And about God. And about God and ourselves. And how the two interact. The book of Jonah is first and foremost about God. It's about the character of God, the nature of God. Who is he? God is a God who feels compassion toward all of his creation, toward his prophet who runs away, and toward the Ninevites as well. The book of Jonah is also about Jonah the prophet and Israel, Jonah as the representative of the nation. Israel did not care about the destiny of other nations. They looked at the nations around them and they said essentially, As far as we're concerned, they can go to hell. They didn't care. Book of Jonah is about us. We love mercy for ourselves and justice for others. And then fourth, Jonah is about God and us. God relentlessly pursues us to make us like himself. God, we know, ultimately doesn't need us, but God has chosen to need us, so to speak. He's chosen to use us to mediate pass along his blessings to a broken world. And so God doesn't want to move us to the place where we are just simply grudgingly obeying him, but to the place where we are like him and love the things that he loves and obey out of heart that's full toward God. 
So as we go through this study, uh, Blake and I want you to think about a few things. I'm going to do the first two weeks, and then Blake will be back, and he'll do weeks three and four. We want you to think about these things as we go through the study. First, do you care about the lost? I mean, really, genuinely, do you care about the fact that there are people who will die even today, never having heard about Jesus Christ, and as a result, they will spend eternity separated from God? Does that bother you? Not just theologically, but emotionally, does that bother you? It should. Do you care about people unlike yourself? Or is that unlikeness so hard for you to overcome that you move away? Or does it make you afraid? Or does it cause you to move toward them in grace? Do you even care about your enemies? Hey, those who have done you wrong, do you care about those people? And then finally, to whom are you sent? Who are the people, not just that God has brought into your life, but who are the people around you that you need to go to, even enemies, and initiate the grace of God with them? So keep those thoughts in mind as we work through the book of Jonah. We're going to cover chapter 1 this morning. So I want you to read with me. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. First lesson that we learn from the book of Jonah is that it is actually possible to run away from God. You can run away from the sovereign God of the universe. He allows such things to happen. Even his select prophet ran away. Although Jonah's the only prophet that we see running away literally from God, even a prophet could run away from God. Now to set the stage for us, I want to ask the question very simply, where did Jonah go? Let's look at this Uh, this story geographically first, so you get a sense of what we're talking about. Jonah was from a a small city, Gath-Hefer. It's right under that number one there on the map. He was from the northern part of the nation, Israel. He's prophesying after Israel had split into two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. He lived in a small town that was just north of Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern tribes. Jonah was told to go to the northeast up to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. Instead, he went further south down to the coast to a port city called Joppa, got on a ship, and was heading toward Tarshish. Now, to put it in the broader context of the Middle East, Jonah's from a small city all the way on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. He was told to go about 550 miles to Nineveh, and instead, he got on a ship, and he went the exact opposite direction. We don't know exactly where Tarshish was. We know that it was on probably the the west coast of Spain. It was, in the ancient Near East, the furthest known point of land. That's where Jonah is going. Jonah is going as far away from the will of God as he possibly can. And so we ask ourselves, why would a prophet of God run from God? I want to give you a couple of possibilities. It may have been that he was afraid. 
It may have been that he was afraid. Nineveh was a dangerous place. It was the capital city of the strongest empire in that day, and they were evil, wicked people. A few years later, the prophet Nahum would actually prophesy again against Nineveh, and he described the city like this. He said, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. That's how Nahum described the city of Nineveh. We know a lot, actually, about the Assyrians because their kings were so brutal and they wanted the world to know. And one king wanted to surpass the next king in brutality. And so they would engrave their brutality on stone. So we have a lot of record of how horrific these people were. I'm going to give you just one illustration. If you have small children, you don't want them to have nightmares. You can just like cover over their, their ears for just a moment. I'll only give one illustration. We don't need to belabor the point. But this is from Asher Nasserpal II. He lived about 100 years roughly before Jonah was prophesying. He said this about himself. I stormed the mountain peaks and I took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors I cut off and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned with fire. I flayed him, that is a captured leader. His skin I spread upon the wall of the city. Now, we have citation after citation after citation. I actually put a few at the end of my slides if you want to get online and read more, you know, if you're into that kind of stuff, whatever. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, it's more of the same. Right? One of their favorite things to do is they put a hook in the bottom jaw of their capture, captives, and then they would chain them all together. There, there are uh, stone carvings of their captives being led away by chain, just a long miles of chains of people just chained together. They take their the rulers of captured people and they'd leave the chain hook in their mouth and they put them in kennels. They were dogs. God says, walk into the capital city and say, God's going to destroy you. (laughs) Jonah could have been afraid, right? That's one possibility. That's one possibility. Uh, I would not have wanted that duty either. It's also possible that it's just, you know, it's a hard job and he doesn't want to do it. This is 550 miles walking across the desert. Maybe if he's lucky, he can rent a donkey, but it's a long trip. It's tough. It's a huge city. It's 600,000 people probably in the surrounding environs of Nineveh. I I mean, I know if God said, hey, you know, get on a donkey and go to Amarillo and prophesy against the panhandle. I I mean, I I don't want to, it's it's hard, God. Send me to Hearn, send me to Snook. You know, I, I don't, but he got, Jonah said, I don't want to go. Now, third possibility, and this is, I think, probably the heart of it. Jonah's worried about his reputation because he didn't like the Ninevites and no one liked the Ninevites and his family or friends or nation. They hated them. And Jonah himself was a popular prophet. He lived in the time of Jeroboam II, who was an evil king, but Jonah prophesied prosperity. There were other prophets, Amos and Hosea, 
who had to do the dirty work, and they prophesied judgment from God upon the nation of Israel for their sins. Jonah, in the midst of an evil reign of an evil king, got to prophesy prosperity. Okay, we see a description of this, 2 Kings chapter 14. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, he became king in Assyria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel sin. Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, was the first king of the northern tribes, and he set up centers of false worship, two of them, one toward the north, one toward the south, so that his people wouldn't go back to Jerusalem, and the two nations reunite. And at these centers of false worship, they got into all forms of idolatry and immorality and probably even burned some of their children, passing them through the fire. It was evil. Well, this second Jeroboam did the same thing. The nation was evil. And Amos and Hosea are crying out and they're saying, God is going to judge you people. God is going to judge you people. This is what Jonah got to prophesy. Verse 25, Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-hefer. In other words, the borders expanded, there was prosperity, there was safety for 41 years, and now Jonah is being called to go to Israel's worst enemy and give them a chance. And we find out at the very end of the book that really this is ultimately Jonah's motivation. He says, you know, God, I knew that you might relent. If they repented, you might not destroy them, and I wanted them dead. We know this about Jonah. He absolutely feared and hated the Ninevites because they were so utterly evil, and they were such a threat against his own people. So we have to ask ourselves, if they were such evil people, why did God send Jonah? Why didn't God just immediately step in and judge them, destroy them? Why didn't he just wipe the Assyrians off the face of the map? Why doesn't God do the same to your enemies? I have a friend who years ago he told me, he said, anytime I interact with somebody and they're mean or they're unkind or I see evil in them, anytime I act, interact with someone who has harmed me or hurt me, I say to myself, for whom Christ died. That's why Christ died. Because your enemies are evil, and they're wicked, and they're sinful. And because you're broken, and you're sick, and you're sinful. That's why Christ died. Prophet Ezekiel wrote this. As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. God takes no delight in destruction of the wicked. He sent his son to die for the wicked. You know, Isaiah 6, we get this glimpse of, of the character of God. Remember, Isaiah goes into the throne room of God, and he's surrounded by angelic hosts, and they are all singing to God, and they're singing out a song that they repeat over and over and over again. It goes like this. Angry, angry, angry is God. Wrathful, wrathful, wrathful is God. Hateful, hateful, hateful is God. Is that how it goes? No. It's holy, holy, holy 
God is utterly different. He is set apart. He is morally pure. And as a result of that, he hates sin, but he loves his creation. He must hate sin because he's holy. But God is not in his nature angry and wrathful. His anger and wrath is a consequence of his holiness because he hates sin. And because he hates sin so much but loves his creatures, he sent his son Jesus Christ to take the wrath that they deserve, that belonged to them. And on the cross, as Jesus hung there, he was taking the wrath of every man, woman, and child, even the most evil, even your enemies, because God is holy but he loves his creatures. And so he poured out his wrath on Jesus so that your debt could be transferred to him so that he could reach out and love to you and rescue you and rescue your enemy from death. God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. God has compassion for Jonah and for the Ninevites and for you and for your enemy. God loves the lost. Peter reflects the same thought, 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, the Lord is not slow about his promise. And in the context, that's the promise to return to judge. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is the heart of God. And that is really fundamentally the message of the book of Jonah. Jonah, in a sense, is the great commission of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, God reached out to one man, Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to bless you. And the reason that I'm blessing you is not so that you can just take all those blessings and enjoy them. I'm going to bless you so that you can turn around and bless all other people, all nations, Abraham. But what happened to Israel through their history is they took those blessings and they enjoyed them for themselves. And they looked at the nations around them and they said, we don't care about you. These blessings are for us. And God, through the book of Jonah, is reminding them of who he is, how his character is different. According to one rabbinical tradition, on the Day of Atonement, which is the day that Israel goes to the temple and they confess their sins for the year, on that Day of Atonement, according to one tradition, they would read the entire book of Jonah, and when they got to the end of the book, the congregation would cry out and they would say, We are Jonah. We are Jonah. God has blessed us, so that we would be a blessing. God has chosen us so that we would be a kingdom of priests mediating his blessings to all nations. Instead, we don't care about the nations around us. We care only about ourselves. We want mercy for ourselves and justice for others. And the book of Jonah was written to remind them that God is different. God sent Jonah because God loves people, even the Ninevites. What we learn from Jonah is that you can, in fact, run from God, and you can run from your calling. To be a priest mediating the blessings, to be a light in darkness, you can run from that. Of course, again, Jonah's the only prophet that literally ran, but none of the prophets wanted their job. None of the prophets wanted to be prophets. Israel's first prophet, greatest prophet, was Moses. When God went and found Moses in the wilderness... Moses wasn't excited about being found. Moses didn't go, all right, now I get to be the prophet. I always want to do that. No, he goes, no, not me, Lord, no. I'm slow of speech. I can't 
you know, think on my feet. God, I, I'm slow. I can't, no, I, any, any, I can't articulate. Anybody, no, no, Lord, no. Pharaoh won't listen to me. My own people won't listen to me. God, send anyone you want. And God says, I'm trying. I want to send you, man. But I knew that you would be resistant and grumpy and crabby out here in the desert. So I already got Aaron. Aaron's on his way. He's about to show up and he will go with you. Moses didn't want the job. Jeremiah didn't want the job. God called Jeremiah and Jeremiah said, no, Lord, I'm too young. God said, no, that doesn't apply here because anywhere you want to go, I'm going to send you there and I'm going to have you speak. You're just going to speak my words. This is what you're going to do. Go. And Jeremiah gave in. Ezekiel didn't want to go. God told Ezekiel, he said, you know, I'm going to send you to a people who are stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. And they are rebellious. Their heads are like rocks. But you know what? I'm just going to make your head harder. And you're going to, this is going to be your life, Ezekiel. You're just going to knock heads your whole life. You're going to live a life of conflict. Enjoy. I mean, nobody wants to be a prophet. To be called to live contrary to your culture. But you know, church, that is our calling. We are called to live contrary to the culture. We are called to announce to our culture that there is one way to be reconciled to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No one can come to the Father through any other way except through Jesus Christ. And our culture hates that message. In a pluralistic culture, they say, no, that is narrow-minded, that is bigoted, that is hateful. That is intolerant, but it's true. And it is our calling to go contrary to the direction of our culture. As Christians, I believe in America, we have gotten soft to this because for so many decades, Christians have been welcomed in the public forum. And now through the last several years, it's it's turned against us. And our voice is not welcomed, it is not heard. And we're shocked and we're surprised. But Jesus said this to his followers. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So don't be surprised. And as Christians, we should expect that. Because it is our calling to go the opposite direction of our culture. But even from the sovereign God, you can run. And you can abandon your calling. But what we learn from Jonah is you can't abandon your calling without consequences. If you run from God, it changes you. It affects you to say no to God. I want you to read with me again Jonah chapter 1 and verse 4. It says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us, and we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. 
Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us because the sea was becoming increasingly stormy? He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and they said, We earnestly pray, O Yahweh, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done just as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. And what I find interesting at this point of the story is that uh, Jonah's plan worked out initially. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do, and so he ran away. And, and for a little while, anyway, that was working out pretty well for him. And you and I can run away from the will of God for our lives, and it can seem that things are working out. But there are consequences. Jonah is affected by his choices. First negative consequence that we see in Jonah's life is that he becomes callous toward the value of human life. Jonah just doesn't care. The storm starts raging. And all the sailors are, are... on deck, and they're throwing the cargo overboard. They're doing everything they can to save one another's lives. And where is Jonah? He's sound asleep. The captain has to go down and shake him up. Imagine that this is not a large boat. Jonah is sound asleep, and the captain says, don't you care that we are perishing? Get up. At least pray. (laughs) You don't know anything about sailing, but at least you could pray. Jonah doesn't care doesn't care about these other people. According to another rabbinic tradition, there were 70 sailors on the boat, and the 70 sailors represented the 70 known nations. That's a metaphorical interpretation, but the point is this. Jonah and Israel didn't care about the nations. Jonah didn't care about his own life. They say, well, how can we get the sea to stop raging? He says, well, just throw me overboard. Just kill me. Ironically, the pagan sailors cared more about Jonah than Jonah cared about them or himself. They try to row and get him to safety. You know, and again, I, think, I read this and I think, Jonah, if you had any courage whatsoever, you just would have jumped. Right? I mean, why, why does Jonah say, you throw me over? He puts all the responsibility for his death on them. Jonah, if you had any courage, you just climb up, jump in, and kill yourself. Just drown yourself, man. He does not care. He doesn't care about them. He doesn't care about himself. Or he could have said to them, turn the ship around because I know God wants me in Nineveh. Just turn the ship around. But he would rather die than obey. He has become hardened and callous to life. And when we find ourselves hardened and callous toward others, when we find ourselves not caring about others, not willing to forgive our enemies, that means there is something wrong in our relationship with God. Because when we are in tune with God, we will come to love the things that God loves, and God loves even our enemies. There's something broken in our relationship with God when we can't care about God's people, God's creatures. Second, Jonah becomes dull to the truth. I want you to read with me again chapter 1. 
verses 7 through 9. As we're reading these verses, if I could have the servers go back and prepare communion for us. Let's read together chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Each man said to his mate, come let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast the lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, if you just read Jonah 1.9, you discover there's a lot of really good theology in this verse. Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear, I have reverence and awe toward Yahweh. That's God's personal name. It goes back to a Hebrew verb that means to be. God says, I am, when he revealed himself to Moses, I I am. I'm the great I am. I am that I am. I'm the self-existent one. I'm eternal. No beginning, no end. I am. And he is also God of heaven who made sea and the dry land. He's the God of heaven. That is, he's the transcendent one. He resides in heaven, but he is intimately involved in the earth. In fact, he's the creator of sea and dry land. That is, everything is under the realm of his control. He's not a regional or a local God. He's the God of everything. There's a lot of great theology packed into that verse. Jonah knew a lot of great theology, didn't he? But it benefits him nothing when he is fleeing from God. And you can know your Bible backwards and forwards. You can know systematic theology inside and out. But if you are running away from God, it will have no practical value whatsoever in your life. Many a man and many a woman who knew their Bibles inside and out have set it all aside and run away from God and family and all that is true. Because when our hearts get hard, we become dull to the truth. We become susceptible to even greater temptation and greater deceit from Satan. Jonah knew a lot of theology, but he wasn't applying any of it. He says, I fear God. Really, Jonah? (laughs) Then why are you running away from him? He made the sea and the dry land. Well, you know, Jonah knew Psalm 139. It was written years before Jonah prophesied. It says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee? Can I go to where the dawn is, to the east? Can I go to the remotest part of the sea, Tarshish? No, even there your hand will find me. I can't go north, south, east, west. I can't go high or low. I can't go in the darkness or in the light. Everywhere you will find me. Jonah knew all that in his head, but it hadn't moved to his heart and changed him. And so he was deceived. He was deceived. Third consequence for Jonah is he becomes separated by his sin. Read with me again, chapter 1, verse 15. It says, So they picked up Jonah, and they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. There's a a progression in chapter 1. It says that um, God said to Jonah, Arise and go to Nineveh. Get up and go. But instead, Jonah arose and then he went down. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went down into the sea. He went down into the fish. And we end chapter 1 and Jonah is in the pit. His sin created separation 
between himself and his God because he refused to share the heart of God and obey the will of God. So my question for you this morning is very simply this. Are you running today? Are you running from God? Maybe you've been running your whole life. Maybe you've never stopped and said, God, please forgive me. Maybe you've never acknowledged for the first time that you have a debt of sin and that only Jesus can forgive that. Maybe you have come this morning because God has been chasing after you. And he's drawing you and he's saying, turn, stop running from me and turn to me and say yes to my son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a believer and you've been a believer a long time, but this morning you're running. Maybe you're running just in small ways, little areas of your life. You say, you say to yourself, well, you know, I can be independent here from God. It's just a small area. Or maybe it's a, a really enormous area where you're running away from God. And this morning, God is saying, turn, turn. As the men come forward and serve us communion, I'd like for us to just take a few moments and meditate. If you are running away from God and you've never turned to him the first time, then maybe this morning as you take the bread and the cup, it will be your first reminder that Christ was broken for you and he gave his blood for you. Or maybe if you've been running as a believer for a long time, it's time to let God's spirit search your heart so you can confess and turn. Let's take a few moments silently to meditate and then we'll take the elements together. First Corinthians 11, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for the body of Jesus broken for us. We thank you for the blood of Jesus poured out for us. We thank you, Father, that you are no respecter of persons, but that you love all. And so we have confidence that you love us even when we are most broken. I do pray, Father, that you would transform our hearts to love those who are lost, to love those even who have harmed us, to display to them your great compassion.